This week, I'm happy to welcome Alice Rothschild to the Cameron Journal podcast. We're going to be talking about Israel-Palestine and the Jewish movement for peace within the um, Jewish community in regards to Israel and Palestine. As many people know, this is a deeply controversial topic, and I'm happy to talk to her. So on this special edition of the Cameron Journal podcast, welcome Alice Rothschild. So my name is Alice Rothschild, and I worked for uh, almost 40 years as an obstetrician gynecologist in the Boston area, and um, I was also involved in work on Israel-Palestine and the peace community within the Jewish community and the greater community, and I'm also a writer. I have three published books and a number of contributions to anthologies on the topic, and um, that's what, I, and I'm currently working on other writing projects as well as uh, several books for children on the topic. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. So the first question I'd like to know is, how did you get into writing about and working with human rights groups in Israel-Palestine as an OBGYN? So when I was uh, in training um, in the 70s, it was quite clear to me that there was a real relationship between societal conditions and health conditions. And that's sort of uh, the attitude that I went into medicine. Um, you know, the poverty and health and nutrition are all related. And so this wasn't a new uh, topic for me. And then when I became um, involved in working on understanding Israel-Palestine, understanding the unheard narratives that I as a Jewish person had never come in touch with, um, I began to look at it through the lens of healthcare. And a group of us in the Boston area all started doing this together. And we um, organized health and human rights delegations to Israel Palestine starting in 2003. And it went on every year until I think probably 2015, but I've, I keep going every year. And um, it was very clear to me that uh, health and the status of well being is directly related to human rights. And I was also um, very much uh, educated uh, by two very wonderful physicians. Uh, one, they were both psychiatrists, but one uh, has since died. His name is Iyad El-Saraj, and he founded the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. And he was very, very clear that health and human rights are interchangeably linked and that you can't one without the other. And the other physician who's been very important to my uh, sort of personal and political and academic understanding is Dr. Rahama Martan, who's a psychiatrist in Israel, and uh, she is the founder of Physicians for Human Rights Israel. Okay, excellent. So when it comes to the interplay of health and civil liberties, what does civil liberties mean to those living in Palestine? So first of all, what does civil liberties mean? So civil liberties means uh, the state of being 
subject to laws that are established for the good of the community, um, and particularly with regard to freedom of action and speech. And if you look at the status of Palestinians uh, living in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, which are internationally recognized as occupied territories, um, they don't have freedom of action. Uh, so people living under occupation uh, are subject to the rule of occupation. They are um, under uh, rules of military uh, law. Um, they are subject to military courts. Uh, they have to have permits to go from point A to point B. They have to have a permit for their car or their donkey. They have to have a permit to build to dig a well, a permit to uh, build a house. I mean, it's a very restricted, uh, controlled way of living. And speech is also uh, monitored very carefully and surveilled by um, the occupying forces. They also have issues around their own governments, um, whether it's uh, the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, uh, because those two governments also are not... Um, very positive when it comes to human rights issues. And uh, so uh, Palestinians live in very oppressive situations in terms of civil liberties, but the, the biggest offender is the Israeli occupation. Uh, East Jerusalem is more complicated because uh, East Jerusalem, uh, the Israelis have claimed as being uh, unified with West Jerusalem and being one city, uh, but they treat the Palestinian inhabitants which are about a third of the population in Jerusalem, uh, very different than the rest of the inhabitants who are Jewish. So they live in a different state of oppression, but still um, multiple house demolitions, uh, you know, disfavor in the courts. Uh, it, it's just a, a, a very different situation from being a Jewish citizen. Mm. So how has your relationship with the modern state of Israel changed through your research and activism? So I grew up in a very traditional Jewish family. Um, I was born the same year that the state of Israel was founded. Um, and my family loved Israel. You know, we saw it grow and blossom, you know, rising out of the ashes of the Holocaust. Um, and I went to Israel when I was 14, and it was just a delirious trip for me. I have my diary, so I actually know how happy I'm here. Um, and I went to Hebrew school for seven years, and... You know, I got a whole messaging about the state of Israel that was, uh, this was, you know, the light unto the nations. This was uh, the rebirth of the Jewish people. This was going to be something that we could really support and be proud of. Now, interestingly, my parents didn't feel obliged to move there, but they felt obliged to support it in many, many ways. So that's where I started, and that's where many Americans start. And so for me... Uh, learning about the, the untold story, the history that I didn't know, um, which was a painful journey, I have to say, um, happened as I became an adult and also began to do more research and be more of an activist. And in some ways it paralleled, you know, I went to school when, you know, Columbus discovered America and the Indians all sat down and they ate together and everything was fine. You know, we didn't understand yeah. imperialism <laughs> and colonialism and ethnic cleansing and racism and the things that we now uh, think about very seriously when we look about look into how our countries founded, where did they come from, how did they get their borders, you know, all the things that make modern history, that wasn't part of my knowledge base and it wasn't part of the discourse. Um, 
And also, you know, the fact that I could think I knew about Israel and not even know what Palestine means or what Palestinian means. I know that there were Palestinians, you know, there were sort of these Arabs that were, we talked about in very derogatory terms, but we didn't have any sense of our own personal prejudices. Um, So my understanding of modern Israel came with my understanding of how the world works in other facets. So I don't see this as sort of an exceptional understanding. I see it as part of my global understanding of, for instance, colonialism and imperialism. And to understand now that there are many different layers to the story of Israel, the fact of the matter is is that Israel was born as a settler colonial state and that there was an attempt to ethnically cleanse the indigenous Palestinians. And that this is part of Israeli history and that we have to face it and we have to figure out how to find some form of justice to the people who were injured is a critical part of my activism. It doesn't minimize the suffering of Jews, but it does mean that Jewish suffering cannot be um, used to oppress another people because you don't end up with something better. You end up with what we have now. Um, So my relationship has changed dramatically. And a lot of it is based on both personal experience, I mean, going there year after year, working in clinics, interviewing people, traveling all over the region, traveling to Gaza, you know, going to refugee camps, as well as interviewing Israelis and reading every book I can find on the topic and um, just having my brain opened up has been a very, very powerful experience because, you know, before I did that, I just didn't understand why people were fighting with each other. And, you know, it seemed like, you know, the Jews were always getting beaten up and I don't understand why. And, you know, it was that kind of attitude. And now I have a much better sense of what this is all about. So um, that's how my relationship has really changed. And the other important thing is that I don't see, um, I don't want Israel to be the exception, you know, Israel claimed like because we suffered so much from the Holocaust, we have a right to take land, oppress other people, do whatever we're doing. And I don't think that that's a, a healthy and productive way to look at history. Um, Israel is a country that that needs to be held to account, like other countries that need to be held to account. And that's how I try to uh, look at the policies of the nation and how the U.S. supports it, because. My other understanding is the the role of the United States and how critical it has been in both funding uh, the Israeli military and covering for Israel in its uh, political policies. Absolutely. And we're going to get to that as we go on. Um, Describe for us the difficulties of being Jewish and being critical of Israel. That is a very tenuous territory to live in. Right. So um, the good news is that there are, you know, five Jews and ten opinions, and that there are many different kinds of Jews, and I think we're talking the United States. But I think uh, one of the um, central uh, belief systems within the mainstream Jewish community is that no matter what, we Jews have to stand with Israel, that we Jews have to defend whatever Israel's doing. You know, it's living in a dangerous neighborhood. It has all these horrible things happen to it. But ultimately, if you're a Jewish person, you have to stand with Israel and you have to be a a devout Zionist. And I think that's part of the sort of central messaging about what it is to be a good Jew. And the other thing that's happened in this country is that because 
most Jews in the United States are not religious Jews. Um, the way they, uh, we, or they are Jewish is to be in love with Israel. That's sort of how you do it now. And um, so if you say, wait a minute, this doesn't seem very sensible to me. Israel is a country. Um, Israel can be criticized like other countries can be criticized. Um, Zionism is a political movement. I have issues with this political movement and its consequences. Um, this results in a, a very fierce outcasting from mainstream Jewish organizations. Um, so I'm fairly trafe. In, do you know what that means? Yes, I Yeah. When it comes to mainstream Jewish organizations, and even progressive Jewish organizations, a lot of them, the, the line in the sand is a belief in Zionism. So if you decide that, that you really can't stand by Israel as an exceptional state that either can do no wrong or has to be excused if it does any wrong, if you have issues with that, then that means you're giving up being part of the mainstream Jewish community. Um, and, um, you know, this can affect your work, your tenure. You know, it can affect lots of parts of your life. Um, and it also means you can't accept a member of a, a temple and be open about your feelings. Um, I think the good news is that there's that the younger generations are much more critical of Israeli policy. Um, they are not uh, as wounded by the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, but the younger generations are more open to being critical and are, don't feel that attached to Israel. So um, there are um, quite a number of you know, amounts of data that show that you know, people, for instance, something like under 35, over half of them really don't stand with Israel right or wrong at all. And um, there are a number of very important uh, progressive Jewish organizations that are critical of Jewish policies that are growing and that are you know, having an impact on younger generations and older generations. Um, so it's difficult, but what I've done is found my own community. Um, so even though I'm outcasted by, you know, the mainstream, I'm not outcasted by everybody. And my own community is not only Jewish, it's Muslim and Palestinian and progressive Christians. And it's, it's actually a very lovely community to live in. And um, I'm quite happy there. So, uh, for me, the, the outcasting is um, is the price you pay, but it also led to a better community that's a better fit for me. Uh, the other difficulty, I think, also is that there is, um, and this has grown over the last couple of decades, and that's fairly uh, disturbing, um, and unfortunately in a position where it's not going to affect my work, but it could affect other things. And so um, it makes me feel a little... Um, you know, paranoid is the wrong word because I'm not a paranoid person, but, you know, it's unnerving and uh, upsetting to be under surveillance as an enemy of the people, you know. Um, I don't think I'm an enemy of the people, but that's sort of how I'm being cast. And uh, the Canary Mission is a perfect example of that. I mean, the this is a, a sh sort of a shadowy website that attacks academics by um, cherry-picking stuff from social media, from things you've written, and then reanalyzing it in a way that casts you as an evil and horrible person. And, you know, it's really annoying to be on their list. I, I, I don't, it's not going to stop me from what I'm doing, but it's, um, it's a very uh, painful development for a lot of people. Absolutely. <clears throat> Why do you think there's so much 
resistance to a critique of Israel and academia? Well, I think, first of all, academia is a reflection of the attitudes of the general society. So I don't think they're that different from any other mainstream institutional group um, of powerful people who are in the intellectual elite. I mean, they're a reflection of that. I think you also have to look at who are the funders of um, academia. And um, there are a lot of sort of mainstream Jewish funders who are very generous donors with their money. That's what one of the things Jews are famous for. And, you know, they're not going to put up with uh, people who are um, critical of Israel. Um, there's also this whole, you know, Hasbara industry that surveils people, that surveils academics, that, um, you know, camera is another example. I mean, there's a whole list of organizations that monitor academics, go after them. And that's from the, the very right wing side of this business. Um, so I think that um, it, that's what the kind of forces that make it uh, difficult to be an open academic on this topic. And, you know, then the people are scared because people lose tenure, they lose their jobs, they get on other universities. I mean, this really affects people's livelihoods. Um, so that the pushback is, is very extreme, which means that the people who are pushing them out are very frightened. Um, and so that, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, and I also think there's a whole thing around the boycott movement where there was a call for a cultural boycott of Israel and um, an academic boycott and that this has really threatened a lot of academics and they, they are opposed to this uh, on issues of free speech. And it's a complicated issue, but the way I look at it is that the boycott calls for boycotting academics who are funded by the Israeli government. And so you could have an Israeli academic speak at your university, but not if they're there because they've been funded by the government. And the reason the boycotters put that in there is that the government and universities in Israel um, host huge military projects, have a very close relationship with the military, are often, the universities are often located on uh, destroyed Palestinian villages. Um, Israeli uh, academics have sh no interest in the conditions for Palestinian academics who are a couple of miles away in a university and can't get a permit to go to a conference. So, um, you know, they're using this uh, uh, academic boycott to apply political pressure against Israel. And, you know, academics in the U.S. say, well, this is, you know, censoring speech. And, you know, there will be academics who get hurt by this, but it's also a political gesture saying in the long run, it is better to push people to be aware of the conditions and to have academics look at themselves and say, do I want to do this when my university is hosting this huge, you know, military, uh, you know, surveillance program? I, I don't think so. So it's part of the political battle, but it adds to the, um, the resistance to critiques of um, Israel in academia. Absolutely. And speaking of critiques, uh, do you take issue with uh, Representative Ilhan Omar's comments about the Israel lobby in Washington? No. <laughs> I mean, she's a very blunt lady, but I think she was actually calling it as it is. And the Israel lobby in Washington is very powerful. It's partly um, APAC, 
which is a very important Jewish lobby. You know, I always say it's the Jewish NRA. Um, it does. It's a very, very. Um, you sh- we should study APEC because they really know how to lobby and how to control people. Um, it's also um, largely uh, funded by evangelicals, who are you know make up a much greater proportion of uh, people in the United States. Um, but this is about pressuring people and about money. And and she was right on the mark. And the thing that really is uh, painful for me is that she was uh, attacked both because of what she said, um, but also because she's a woman and she's a Muslim and she's a hijabi and she's of color. And, you know, that kind of person is easy to take down. And so it's part of the racism and the Islamophobia in our country that people went after her. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we got to work on that issue. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of evangelical support of Israel, how how does that kind of support, no matter what, strike you? The evangelical organizations support Israel no matter how awful it gets. How does that feel to you? <clears throat> Well, I feel like, you know, with friends like this, who needs enemies, you know. Um, so the evangelicals really came into the picture after the 67 war. And they started pouring, you know, millions and millions of dollars into the settlement projects into the West Bank. Uh, so they are major settlement funders. And they are also um, provided a huge amount of sort of political cover um, by taking a very um, literal uh, reading of the Bible and um, wanting, so their deal is that they want all Jews to return to Israel. Now, they don't do this out of the kindness of their hearts. They do this because they want us to all return so that there can be the rapture and we can all either convert or die and they can go to heaven, you know, or whatever. I think that's sort of how the story goes. And so, yes, I grew up evangelical. I oh, you grew, did I get it right? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, so, yes, yes. first so of all, you can have the, yeah, and there's a whole seven years thing in Revelation. We're not going to go into that right now. Keep going. I'm not an expert on Revelation, but I do know that evangelicals whose main goal is for me to die is not someone I would want to be pals with. But, um, so the evangelical, uh, the power of evangelicals is huge. And I think that, um, it's very, very dangerous. And, um, you know, the the settlements in Israel that have benefited from evangelical support basically feel like you know, these people are a bunch of lunatics. We'll take their money and run, you know, and we, we know there's, no gonna, there's not going to be a rapture and they're crazy. But, you know, I'll take a couple million dollars to plant my settlement in this Palestinian land, you know. So um, it's a kind of weird relationship because it's a it, – each one is using the other for their own means. But, you know, they're very powerful in the U.S. government. They're very powerful in Congress. Um, they have these mega churches with people that are, you know, total believers. And it's terrifying to me because um, they're not a, a good actor in this in this scenario. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about evangelism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on top of the, the major political cover, because it's become politically taboo to mm-hmm. criticize, you know, Israel's policies, which, you know, guarantees that the flow of weapons and money will continue unabated, right. regardless right. of which political party is in office. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, how do you think Zionism as a political movement affects the human rights of Palestinians? Well, if you think about it, 
Um, you know, Zionism as a political movement came to fore in the late 1800s. And the deal was, uh, you know, in Europe, there was all this anti-Semitism and pogroms and things were getting kind of really touchy. And um, so the Zionists came to the conclusion that um, Jews needed a place to go, a homeland. And, you know, they were talking Latin America, Uganda. You know, they didn't have a place in mind. And when they hit upon Palestine, it became clear to them that they could use um, a uh, biblical um, reasoning to place it there. Although if you think about uh, biblically where Jews were, they were in much further, you know, they went to the Euphrates. (laughs) It's a a very political decision about what the the boundaries are. Um, So... But but the problem is, is that this required um, the removal of the people who were living there. And there were Palestinians living there, mostly Muslims, but also Christian Jews. They all thought they were Palestinians. The Jews talked Arabic. Um, And, you know, basically they got along pretty well. You know, the British imperial uh, mandate um, screwed things up some. But, you know, this was a group of people who who were living in the Ottoman Empire in their little corner and were not bothering each other around religion. Um, so once the Zionists started moving into Palestine in the early 1900s with the first and second Aliyah and um, with the building of the Zionist movement, part of the deal was that they had to get rid of the Palestinians. And so first they were buying land, which was you know, legal, although they were buying them from absentee landholders. Um, and the kibbutzim were starting, but they wouldn't hire Arab workers. And you know, the whole tenet was that ultimately the Palestinians, the indigenous Palestinians had to go. And um, the war in 48, the plan was that there would be no Palestinians in the state of Israel at the end of this war. So um, Zionism has had a completely negative effect on Palestinians in every way, um, whether it's you know ethnic cleansing or losing land or losing political rights. Zionism doesn't protect political rights for Palestinians. And so it's been a political force that um, you can understand why um, Palestinians would vehemently oppose. And, yes, yes. you know, their human rights uh, are pretty devastated by this particular project. You can't have human rights if someone's, you know, taking your land and, you know, putting you in an occupied territory and demanding permits every time you move. And, you know, it, it, the human rights are, in viol- are being violated daily. Um, so Zionism had a, a, a terrible effect on human rights. And, you know, for me, you know, when I was a kid, I was sold, you know, Zionism is the freedom fight of Jews, but it's actually a much more complicated thing. It's a political movement that privileges Jews over everybody else and privileges Jewish suffering and and Jewish entitlement and Jewish aspirations and Jewish dreams over everybody else. And it means it has to squash the people that get in the way. And the people who get in the way are the people who are living there who are the Palestinians. I see, I see. So then with that in mind, is I got what are your thoughts on the on the BDS movement, the boycott? So in two thousand five, um I think over 170 Palestinian civil society organizations got together and called for a boycott, divestment, and sanction movement against Israel. And for me, um, that was actually a very positive development because it meant that 
Palestinians were uh, renouncing uh, a violent struggle, which is a complicated thing, but I'm basically against violence on all sides, by the way. Um, and they were espousing um, a nonviolent civil society movement. And um, the call was to boycott products from Israel, to divest from companies that profit from the occupation, and to sanction the state. And so I have become, the more I have learned about the BDS movement, and, you know, I've had meetings with Omar Baghouti, who's one of the leaders. I know people in, uh, on the Israeli side who worked on it. I've worked on BDS um, projects. Um, the more I've worked on it, the more powerful I think it is. And I think it's something we should support. And when people get all, you know, excited and freaked out about it, I say, look, you know, Palestinians are oppressed. When they fight back violently, everybody condemns them. So now they're fighting back nonviolently, and everybody condemns them. Exactly how are oppressed people supposed to fight back? Um, and, you know, when I look at a BDS movement like this, and I see, you know, the history of boycott movements, whether it's South Africa, whether it's grapes, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of movements. The Jews use it boycotting against the Nazis. You know, I mean, it's a political strategy that is very powerful. I think we should support it. And if you look at the amount of freak outness that's going on, um, you know, Net, uh, Netanyahu said that BDS is, is a threat to Israel second only to Iran, which was really news to everyone in the BDS movement because we feel like we're not that strong. Um, or if you look at the fact that 28 states in the United States have said that companies who support BDS, that you shouldn't do business with them, means that people are very threatened by this which must mean that it's very effective. And I don't, you know, we haven't, as members of, you know, I'm part of the BDS movement, we haven't taken down the Israeli homeless industry, but that's not probably going to happen. What's going to happen is that this is a threat to Israel's reputation. And Israel needs to have a reputation as a good place, as the only democracy in the Middle East, as a light unto the nation. So that's what they, their, their power is about. And I think what the power of the BDS movement is, is that it's calling attention to the fact that there's a that there's a whole underside to this reputation that is not good, that there are some major human rights violations and injustices that are not being addressed, and the BDS movement is calling attention to that. And there have also been companies that have pulled out, and they're just what's happening is that for corporations, it's becoming costly to do business in Israel. You know, and it also is an educational tool. It's like if you have a Seder and you refuse to have Israeli wines and your, you know, Uncle Harold asks, well, why won't you have Israeli wines? They say, well, the grapes are grown in the West Bank. And he says, what's West Bank? And you say, well, it's the occupied territories and their settlements and their settlers who have vineyards. And it's illegal according to international law. And I respect international law. And so I won't buy Israeli wines. It's a moment to educate your uncle. So, you know, they're all different layers of the BDS movement that I think are very useful and powerful and it should be supported. And it's a nonviolent movement. Yeah, you kind of got into my next question. I was going to ask about the American states that refuse to give contracts to companies that boycott Israel. I think, I don't think there's another country on this planet that would cause state governments in America to start to get choosy on the thing. But Israel is this kind of unique and special case. And of course, it's mostly red states for obvious reasons. Right. Um, it's, 
how what's the discussion i guess to expand upon your point to try to answer the question what's the discussion in the bds movement about is governments taking this kind of extraordinary move well i think there's a lot of discussion because first of all i think this is probably unconstitutional and illegal because boycotting is a form of political speech um a B, I think this also reflects um, the huge amount of sort of military industrial connections between Israel and America that we need to bring up because there are all these multinational corporations that are making huge amounts of money and weaponry around surveillance and weapons and this kind of thing. And and both the U.S. and Israel want to protect that and they don't want anybody to you know shake that one up. Um, so. You know, I do think you're right that this is the only country in the world that would there would be this response. And I think what's happening, you're also seeing that there's a confusion between criticisms of Israeli policy and Zionism and support of BDS and anti-Semitism. And this goes all the way up to the State Department. I mean, the State Department has defined uh, one of the forms of anti-Semitism as criticism of Israel, you know, calling out Israel on, and they have a whole list of things. Um, so it's all part of that package. And I think it's very, very dangerous. It's dangerous to democracy. It's probably unconstitutional. And it's one of the struggles that we have to work against as we try to make more just solutions to these issues. It's really not going to solve anything. No, that, uh, that, that, that makes sense. That drives... So I understand that you try and work with young writers in Gaza. Can you tell us more about that and give us a touching story or take us into that work? Sure. So um, I am part of an uh, organization called We Are Not Numbers, um, which started a couple of years ago um, with a very wonderful woman named Pam Bailey, who um, was working with Gazans and basically looked at the reporting from Gaza and and basically, the reporting from Gaza is, you know, one Israeli soldier who's 28, who has a lovely family and three children and a mother who loves him was killed and 3,000 Palestinians were killed. And so Gazans were reported as numbers and Israeli Jews were reported as human beings. And the problem with that is that, first of all, it's totally racist and it dehumanizes the people who are dying there, uh, mostly civilians. And so a group got together of um, young people, which in this case is like 20-year-olds to mid-30s, who want to be writers, journalists, reporters in the English language, and who want to get better at it. And um, they, uh, this group came together, and basically what happens is that People apply to be a writer, and they have to, you know, agree to produce and that kind of stuff. And then they are um, paired with an English writer um, in the U.S., such as moi, and they write their essay, and then I critique it, and then they rewrite it, and I critique it, and we go round and round and round and round and round until we get uh, a piece of work that is respectable in good English, convincing, accurate, you know, the usual things that you want for a good piece of writing. And um, then uh, the pieces get posted, and also they'll write poetry as well, and get posted on the website. So people can go to the website, We Are Not Numbers, and see these these writings. And, you know, some of them are better written than others because some young people are better writers than others. But, you know, the goal is to make them better writers. 
Um, and what they're doing is, um, and also um, there have been uh, two books published by these of these works. One uh, was in English and one was published, believe it or not, translated into German because that was the only publisher that would take it. Um, and I wrote the prologue to that book. Um, so the, the idea is to get the word out on, on these writers' stories. And basically, most of them are writing very personal stories. Um, and so I'll tell you two things. Uh, one was, you know, in, in Gaza, a lot of people live in large families. There's very little privacy. And one of the ways that uh, sometimes I can Skype with a writer, um, oftentimes it's really hard, partly the time difference, partly you know, half the time there's no electricity. You know, you never know what the situation is going to be. It's bombing, you know, whatever. But I was trying to have a conversation with this woman, and she was trying to keep, like, all her siblings out of the room while she was having this conversation with me. And I could see that that her 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 space to be a writer was so um, small because of all the pressures on her, the size of her family, the intrusions of her siblings, everybody wanting to know who she was talking to. And I could just imagine what it would be like to try to sit down and write a piece. I mean, I, you know, had a total quiet and I closed my door. You know, there's people don't have that privilege. And then they don't have the privilege of always having Internet and electricity. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, one of the pieces that one of the writers wrote was about, and this was a, a reporting on a family uh, that went to the great uh, that went to the great march of return, and um, which is the Friday weekly marches that were going on for a while, and um, one of the sons was killed, and you know her describing uh, what the family saw and felt, and this young man being killed, and he had a little baby, and you know it made it very real uh, what the personal price is that people are living through, and what kind of suffering a family goes through when a family member's killed, and thousands of family members have been killed. And these are not soldiers. These are civilians. These are students. These are, you know, people trying to have a better life um, who get caught in the crossfire or who are protesting nonviolently and get uh, shot by snipers because um, there's a lot of sniper activity from the Israelis at these marches. And so her, her piece was um, very uh, poignant for me because – it was an on the ground, you know, she said, he said, they found the body, this happened, that happened, it was in the ambulance. It wasn't like theoretical. So, you know, I think there's a real uh, benefit to going to that website and uh, reading the work that they do and understanding they're trying to be heard. And they are basically living, you know, people call it the world's largest open air prison. But I always say it's not a prison because in a prison, you know, the prison guards are responsible for the health and the feeding of the prisoners, whereas in this prison, the prison guards have basically thrown away the key. Um, but it's some kind of prison. Um, and it's, a, you know, there's like a 70% unemployment rate for college graduates. And there's a huge number of college graduates. You know, it's like a place of enormous hopelessness and um, as well as inspiration and resilience. And it's all going on simultaneously. Uh, but I think you know, just as I became much more educated by um, learning personal narratives, and I think the power of the personal narrative is very important, and that's how I write. Um, I think learning these personal narratives is a very uh, powerful and eye-opening experience for people. And also, you get to see these are people who are your enemies. These are people who are trying to make a life and who are under a very oppressive situation, both from the siege, which has been going on for a decade, um, over a decade and um, 
also um, the problems with Hamas. Yes, absolutely. Um, what is the most effective activism that people can do to support the Palestinian cause? So I think the first thing is that people need to be educated. I mean, I talk to people and they say, well, who's occupying who? You know, they don't even know the basics of the power dynamics. So one is education. And it's not in, in this day and age with the Internet, with all sorts of alternative media sites, it is not hard to know what's going on. You, it, you can no longer say you didn't know. So you got to get beyond the New York Times and the NPR. You just, you know, like five minutes a day, you can have a much better idea of what's going on. Um, I think it's also important to be an engaged citizen, which means writing letters to the editor, uh, going to protests, talking to your elected officials. You know, every time you see something in the newspaper that just isn't right, you know, you got to say something. I mean, I don't know if you knew, saw recently in Jeopardy. Did you see this thing in Jeopardy? Um, no, no I, I didn't, and I'm in the news business, so tell us okay. about it. So, you know, I, me, I'm saying this, I've never watched Jeopardy in my life, but what happened was that they asked, uh, where is the um, Church of the Nativity, which is in Bethlehem, which is in the Axe Territory. So the first contestant said Palestine, and they said no. And then the second contestant said Israel, and they said yes. And this caused a huge uproar on social media, and they finally apologized to do whatever Jeopardy people do. Um, that was good. I mean, you got to watch every little detail and call it out because Bethlehem is not in Israel. And people need to know that. And people need to know that to get to Bethlehem, you have to go through a huge military checkpoint. Bethlehem is a walled city. You know, it, it's not like a sweet little place where Jesus was born. It is very... It's a city under occupation. And the way people learn about that is by learning the details. So that kind of stuff, I think, is really important. And also newspapers, you know, they're not going to publish. The New York Times is not going to publish your letter. But if they get 100 letters, they'll publish one of them. So it's that kind of thing. And also, you know, our, our um, legislators are such um, cowards and are so um, dependent on funders that will not allow any of this discourse, they don't hear from us because um, if you go and look at polls, there's a huge amount of discord on what, how people feel. And many, many people, you know, I, I don't want to quote numbers because I don't have them in front of me, but large percentages of the U.S. population think Israel gets much too much military aid, much too much cover, you know, all those kind of things. But it's not reflected in our military, in our um, political process. And clearly we have a completely deranged political process right now, but our political leaders need to hear from us over and over and over again. And then I think people need to respect the boycott movement. And, you know, if you're part of an organization, let's say if you're in a church, you could organize activities through your church or your, um, or in your <clears throat> local um, grocery store, but you know you could also do it on a personal level, not buying Israeli wines, avoiding avoiding Israeli products, educating your friends about why you're avoiding Israeli products. You know that kind of little thing counts as well as the big things. And the thing about boycott is that it can be done on a local level, and I think that that's important to know and, and important to be educated about because it's part of educating your community once you figure out what to educate them about. So I think there's a, a tremendous amount to do to support the Palestinian cause. And it's also, it's a really tough time because 
there's so many causes out there. You know, think of what's happening in Yemen. <laughs> you know, think of what's happening in Syria. Yeah. I mean, there's so much suffering in this world right now um, that the Palestinians tend to get lost. And I think it's very important not to lose them. Um, and also because their struggle is one of the cornerstones of the struggles in the Middle East. And if this could be um, worked in a more just fashion and um, there could be some resolution to some of these issues, some of the other issues would get defanged in some way. Um, and so I think it's just important to, to keep it in the spotlight um, as we try to muddle through, <laughs> muddle our way through the politics we live in. Yeah, no, that that absolutely that absolutely makes sense. What's the difference between a good critique of Israel and anti-Semitism? Because that gets very muddy for a lot of people. Yeah, and and I understand that. So, um, anti-Semitism <coughs> involves hating Jews, Jewish organizations, um, solely because they're Jewish. It involves caricatures of Jews as hook-nosed, as bankers, as untrustworthy. It's it's the sort of Shakespearean Jew. Um, but all of the attitudes are related to the fact of Jewishness. Israel is a state, and critiquing the policies of a state is very different than hating Jews. Now, the thing that makes it very complicated is that Israel claims to be the state of the Jewish people. And the problem is that you know, half the Jewish people don't live in Israel. And a lot of Jewish people don't think the state of Israel represents their opinions. So the Israeli pronouncements make it confusing to people to know what the difference is. But Israel is not a religion. It's not um, Judaism. It's not Jewish. Israel is a state. And so as a state, it should be criticized and applauded just like any other state, it shouldn't be exceptionalized. And so I think you have to look at the, also at the motivations of the critiquer, because um, there are anti-Semites who criticize Israel. We know this. But most you know, uh, thoughtful, moral criticism of Israeli policy is around human rights issues, is around racism, is around historical injustice, is around ethnic cleansing, is around things that on, at, on any other state, we might come to some agreement. But when it comes to Israel, everybody goes dark. And so I think it's important to try to keep Israel in the same place as other states and not to exceptionalize it in this conversation. And that sometimes helps people to distinguish between anti-Semitism and thoughtful criticism of Israel. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Rothschild, I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us. I very much appreciate your perspective. This is something I wanted to highlight a lot more. So I appreciate that someone like you is out here doing this work. Well, thank you. And I do have a website, alicerothschild.com, that has a lot of my writings and commentary and blogs. And uh, my latest book is Condition Critical, Life and Death in Israel-Palestine, which I urge people to read. Thanks for listening to this special interview with Alice Rothschild. If you want to learn more about her and her work or to buy a book, head to alicerothschild.com. 
That's Alice, A-L-I-C-E, Rothschild, R-O-T-H-C-H-I-L-D.com. You can access all of her work there. Thank you very much for listening to this very special interview with the Cameron Journal podcast. Catch me on Twitter at Cameron Cowan, Facebook.com slash Cameron L. Cowan. Or, uh, or any of your favorite other of any other of your favorite social media platforms. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Please share with your friends. This is a vital and important message about basically Israel being an apartheid state. So I hope you've learned a lot. I hope it's given you some clarity to the situation. And I look forward to talking more about this conflict in my own podcast episode soon. So thanks much. See you next time. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast.